So tonight we are in Judges chapter 2, and we'll be starting in verse 19 and going through chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 2, starting verse 19, says, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded to their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And so this is wrapping up the final section of this introduction that we see before we get into, if you look at um, chapter 3, verse 7, you see um, the judge Othniel, and that starts the cycle of the judges as it progresses through all the different judges throughout Israel. Um, this is the end of the introduction to this cycle that we have seen for the first two full chapters. And um, last week we looked at how God pitied Israel and had compassion on them and showed them mercy by giving them a judge. And now this week we see more of God's judgment on Israel by what it looks like when they don't have a judge in their land. And when Yahweh provides a judge, Israel is saved out of their oppression and brought into the time of prosperity. But every time when the judge brings them into the time of prosperity, Israel tolerates the external righteousness of the judge without having heart change to what the religious practices actually are for the Israelites. So they tolerate this external righteousness and the judge serves more of a role of restraint rather than spiritual leadership. He's restraining the Israelites from running into sin, although they keep, as it says, in their stubborn ways, looking to go back into their sins. And as the cycle repeats over and over and over again, once the judge dies, they return to their stubborn ways. And once the judge is gone, there's always major backsliding with the Israelites. And in our Christian world today, we hear this term, the slavery to sin. And Israel, especially in Judges, epitomizes what slavery to sin actually looks like. It is just a prime example of what being in bondage to sin is like. And that God's kindness in giving them a judge still doesn't lead them to repentance. Um, even kindness through deliverance from their enemies, from their oppressors, it still does not lead them to repentance. They are in bondage to sin. And the root issue of it is the sin condition of their hearts. And Israel 
isn't just held captive by their oppressors when the judge is not there. They're held, captives by their, held captive by their oppressors and by their sins. As uh, one of the commentators said, they have Baal in their blood. Um, and so there's a simple cycle that we see throughout this introduction that we've already repeated, um, but just by way of memorization, um, it goes idolatry, military defeat, divine rescue, and repeat. Um, but there's, there's a more detailed cycle, and one of the study Bibles had to offer, I think is valuable and insightful, it has eight steps as to what this cycle actually looks like for Israel. And so um, it starts off by Israel not doing right in the sight of the Lord. And once they don't do right in sight of the Lord, the Lord gives Israel into the hands of their oppressors. Israel serves the oppressor for a certain number of years, depending on the judgeship um, and the, the time in that it varies every scenario. And then always leads, the oppression leads to Israel crying out for the Lord, for mercy. And then the Lord raises up a deliverer, who is the judge, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon the deliverer. And the judge um, subdues the oppressor, and then the land has peace or rest for X number of years before the judge dies, before Israel backslides, before the cycle repeats itself all over again. And this detailed cycle um, does well in showing what's really going on in each of the narratives, but in short, the idolatry, military defeat, divine rescue, repeats is a good way just to know and to keep track of what's going on. Uh, so starting in verse 19, it says, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. And this is the beginning stage of the cycle, going to other gods, being disobedient on their backslide. This is the beginning of the cycle. And this, the religious toleration that they had while the judge was present is thrown out the window. The judge is gone, religious toleration is gone. They result back to their stubborn ways. They continue um, as Jose puts the imagery, whoring after other gods. They're just chasing and lusting after these other gods that are not Yahweh. And idolatry and apostasy are what define the Israelites in their greatest moments of weakness. And remember, Max talked about apostasy a couple weeks ago, and it is abandonment of a specific religious belief. It is idolatry of looking towards other gods and making them idols before Yahweh and also just abandoning their own religious practices, being submitted under Yahweh and running to these other Baals and other foreign gods. And that's what makes up all this backsliding of Israel. Uh, as soon as the judge is gone, as soon as the leader is gone, they start acting up all over again. If you think of a second grade classroom, um, this is not my example I got from the commentary, but think of second grade classroom, everybody's good, obeying their teacher. As soon as the teacher has to go away and they know the teacher's going to be gone for a couple minutes, is chaos. It's, everybody's crazy, going wild until the teacher comes back and takes a little bit to subdue them. And it might not just be secondary classroom, it might be high school, middle school classrooms too. Um, but once the teacher comes back, it takes a little bit of time to subdue them and then they are subdued and um, are restrained. And that is how Israel is with the judges. As soon as the judge is gone, chaos ensues, back, religious backsliding, running to these other gods, disobeying Yahweh. And once the judge comes back, it takes a little bit of time, but things get back in order and they are restrained of their sinful desires. And this is what the cycle looks like over and over again. This is what all the judges had to deal with. Every time the Lord gave the judge, um, they had to deal with this wretched state of Israel. And Israel was so stubborn in their ways that there would be peace and rest in the land for decades at times. There's one 
I think Othniel was the first one, and he there's rest and peace for 40 years in the land. But as soon as that, his time was up, as soon as he passed away, they resulted back to what they always slide into and in their idolatry and apostasy. Back into the sins that they just love to commit. Um, continuing on, verse 20 says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. And it says this, the Lord's anger, was kindled, Lord's anger was kindled against them. And this imagery is used dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. You think of adding small little sticks and leaves to a fire. And it's just this anger that is growing and growing and growing because of the sin, because of the rebellion of the Israelites. And this kindling fire is a picture of God's judgment against Israel. And it says, if you look at um, in the quote, it says, because this people have transgressed my covenant. And what's unique is he's talking about the Israelites in this situation, but he uses this people. Um, and this is, the Hebrew word is goy. And it's and specifically referencing people or nations that are not Israel. So this statement, because this people, is Yahweh saying, these are not my people. I have left them. They have backslid. They are sinful. They are idolatrous. They are apostles apostate and so this claim of this people is Yahweh saying these are not my nation Israelites these are just normal people the normal nations that are not specific to the covenant name that Yahweh has given Israel uh, the Israelites have transgressed this covenant that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai and this is an indictment that Israel is just straight up disobedient to the Word of God continuing on verse 21 so I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. If you flip back just a couple pages to Joshua chapter 23, should be just two or three pages backwards from Judges. Um, Joshua chapter 23, verses 11 through 13. And this statement in Judges is a callback to this prophecy. And it says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good around that the Lord your God has given you. And so this is a callback to this prophecy showing that Israel has done exactly what they were not to do, and now they're reaping the punishment for breaking the covenant with Yahweh. And Yahweh promised that if Israel would be obedient, he would drive these nations out. But since, he hadn't, since Israel hadn't been obedient, we see these nations that we'll read and study in just a few minutes that Yahweh did not drive out because the stipulation was that Israel be obedient, and Israel has yet to be obedient. Um, and however, Israel has not truly proven to love God, and therefore God is going to continue to not drive these nations out of the land until Israel is obedient. He's actually going to let the other nations stay in the land to test Israel. And this next verse, verse 22, tells us that. It says, In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did, or not. So this reason for these opposing nations being in the land is purely just a test for Israel. 
It's testing their faithfulness to the covenant. It's testing their obedience to the covenant. And Yahweh already knows the outcome as what this will be, as he's already predicted and explained through the author of Judges in the cycle of Judges, there's always backsliding. It's always going to go negative, but he still is presenting this as a test for the Israelites. And it is not uncommon for Yahweh to test his people. He tested Abraham. He tested King Hezekiah. He tested the prophet Elijah. Um, in 1 Kings 17, you can turn there if you want, or um, if you don't want to, I'll just read it. Um, 1 Kings 17, 1, I'll go all the way through verse 6. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the book. And Elijah had just prophesied to King Ahab that there's going to be a drought in the land. There's not going to be rain. There's not even going to be dew. And the Lord says to Elijah to go away into this desolate place and that he will provide him with food and water. And Elijah, knowing there's a drought coming, faithfully goes into this desolate place where there's no food, where there's no water, and the Lord provides for him. So the Lord tests his people regularly, and this is a test for Israel. And the Israelites in this context are not what they were like in Joshua's day. The fathers of the Israelites made into the promised land with Joshua. They were obedient to Joshua. They experienced great military results and victory with Joshua. Now the generation to follow has fallen entirely short of the standard that their fathers had set in the previous generation. And this is a test on Israel from these opposing nations, from the nations that are inhabiting this land with them. And the question is, what do tests produce? And tests always produce results. And we'll see at the end of this section what results we get from the Israelites. Continuing on, verse 23 says, So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out of the land quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And this is a confirmation that the Lord purposefully kept those opposing nations as he said he would if Israel wasn't obedient to the covenant. He didn't drive them out and he didn't allow Joshua's army to capture and to kill them. He purposefully left them there as this test for the Israelites. And here Yahweh takes, here through the rest of this passage, Yahweh takes a hands-off approach with Israel. And there's some theological danger in the statement that Yahweh is hands-off in this situation, but he knows exactly how this is going to go, but his hand is not in this guiding the Israelites. He says, all right, you do what you guys are going to do and see if you can be obedient to my law without me. And we'll see as Yahweh's hand is not on the Israelites through this next couple of verses that uh, it does not fare too well for the Israelites. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. And they left the inexperienced ones 
in Israel, those who did not know what the previous war with the Canaanites was like. Um, and it's all to test their faithfulness of this new generation, this backsliding generation. And he has removed his hands, Yahweh the Lord has removed his hands from the situation, and he is not providing victory for Israel. He's also not allowing them to be defeated either. He's letting Israel handle the matters themselves. Verse 2 says, It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And the author here is saying, This was only so those who had not yet known war would be able to know, so they could teach it. And this brings up the topic that is controversial in the Christian church, which is what the ethics of holy war are. A God-sanctioned war, and we're going to expound upon the ethics of that a little bit. Um, Some in Christian circles are adamant that there are no moral ethics to holy war. That it is not a good thing. A good God, a loving God, would not have holy war with his people. And some would say that it is totally ethical because God, God sanctions it and commands it, and so it's ethical. Um, many people fall somewhere in between that, recognizing that God has commanded it, but also recognizing that the New Testament tells us to love our neighbor, and how do we do that when God's telling us to kill our neighbor? Um, and these verses and these ideas can be hard to reconcile with the fact, especially when God is commanding war in the Old Testament. Um, one of my seminary classes about a month ago, uh, one of my professors gave an entire lecture on the ethics of holy war. And so I just have a couple notes of a couple of his ideas, not my ideas, um, but I think they're good biblical truths. Um, and I'll propose them to you all. Um, this, to support that holy war is indeed an ethical stance to take. Um, and a place to start is to recognize that in the ancient Near East, which is the time period of Judges and most of this Old Testament like historical book section, um, war was a common practice. Um, it was how many things were decided, how disagreements, how con- conflicts were settled was with war. Um, and that doesn't necessarily excuse it totally with our modern perspective and our modern understanding of war. Um, that kind of sets the scene for at least the context of it was normal in these days for Israelites and surrounding nations to go into war. One of the harder things to understand about holy war is that it was commanded and sanctioned by God, the same God that tells us to love our neighbor. And we see that he does this, but we can ask the question, why would he sanction war? Why is there a need for him to command war? And it's, it's a deeper question to wrestle with. And it isn't complex to understand the basics that God does command it, um, but it's harder to grasp that if Israel didn't obey the command, they would actually be sinning by not going to war and slaughtering and capturing these opposing nations. So why does God command these wars? Um, Canaan and the Canaanites had been evil for centuries. Their religious practices, cult prostitution, and child sacrifice were nothing but evil. And one of the examples of child sacrifice is they would take these children, put them in bags, and take them to the top of the temple or tall buildings, and they would throw them off the side of the buildings as a sacrifice. And to those who opposed the practice, they would say that uh, they were calves, baby cows in the bags, not children. Um, And outright denial that they were actually throwing children off, but that was one of the forms of child sacrifice in this Canaanite 
practice. Um, and at the root of it, it is just evil. And the Israelite religion and Canaanite religion are just fundamentally different religions. Israelites would sacrifice animal, animals out of reverence to God, asking for his forgiveness, as Yahweh said he would through the proper sacrifices. And the Canaanites would sacrifice children, sacrifice animals in different ways to try to get their gods to do what they wanted them to do. It was all manipulation to get their own agenda through to their gods, thinking that in these different ways they would sacrifice or different ways of sleeping with cult prostitutes, that it would get the gods to do what they wanted the gods to do. They are incompatible religions. In Israel, coming into Canaanite inhabited land, the Canaanites fully intended to slaughter Israel. And so for Israel, this presented a kill or be killed situation. And if you think of the covenant that God made with Abraham, God promised that he would send a savior through the line of Abraham. Israel is Abraham's covenant family. They are God's covenant people. And if they would have been wiped out, the promise to send a savior through the line of the nation of Israel would have been totally void. It would have been wiped out. Um, And that is your salvation story. That is my salvation story. And that is that Israel had to conquer these nations to survive so that God's promises would be true that Judaism wouldn't have fallen apart so Christ could come and that the gospel could be what it is today. And if it wasn't for these wars, for fighting for their lives, we would not have the gospel as we know it today. So as hard as it is to read these scriptures on holy war, how bloody these battles can be and hard to understand why God would say to do these wars, to command these wars, is that it is for the sake of the gospel to preserve the blood of Israel, the nation of Israel, so Christ could come, so Christ could die, so he could resurrect, and so the gospel could be what it is today. And continuing on, verse 3, says, These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. And this is just description of who Israel would exactly be tested by. 1 Samuel 6 gives the name of these five lords of the Philistines. And the lords are not other gods. They're rulers or tyrants in the lands. Continuing on into verse 4. It says, They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And if you look at the repetition now, it has said three times comparing to the fathers, to the previous generation. And it's significant because this is the generation that's following the great generation that came in to the promised land with Joshua that conquered all these battles. And now, just a generation later, there's total backslide and they look vastly different than the generation of their fathers. And so this comparison has been made three times in this short little section to call back to remember the faithfulness of the generation that was with Joshua and the lack of faithfulness in this generation currently present. Verses 5 and 6, getting to the end. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the results are in for the tests 
and Israel has failed. They, this last verse is their daughters. They took to themselves for wives, their own daughters. They gave to their sons, and they served their gods. They have intermarried. They have spared the Canaanites in the land, and they are serving other gods that are not Yahweh. And just to clear up some of these pronouns of the last verse, there's a bunch of theys and thems and theirs. And so um, if you want to look at verse 6, we can walk through it slowly, and their daughters, the daughters of the other nations, they, Israel, took to themselves, Israel, for wives. And their, Israel, own daughters, they, Israel, gave to their, the other nations, sons. And they, Israel, served their, the other nations, gods. And so, confusing, but exactly what was commanded for Israel not to do, Israel has done. And Exodus 23 verses 32 and 33 um, explain the covenant that God made with Moses that highlights this specifically. This is exactly what the Israelites are breaking in the covenant. Exodus 23 verses 32 and 33 says, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So you shall not serve their gods, make covenant with their gods. You shall not let them dwell in your land. And Israel has spared the lives of these nations around them. They are whoring after their other gods. They have intermarried in these other cultures, in these other nations. And they have transgressed everything that Yahweh has told them not to do. If you look just a page back in Judges 2, verse 7, it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So just chapter 2, verse 7, talks about the people serving the Lord. Comparing to chapter 3, verse 6, taking other daughters, giving their own daughters away, and serving other gods is this vast difference from the previous generation to the generation that we are reading of now. And it's the difference between the faithfulness of that previous generation, the faithfulness, the lack of faithfulness that the gen- degenerate Israelites um, that we see here. One of the commentators says this is generation degeneration. They have lost the moral and ethical qualities of the generation that was before them. And so this passage shows what the nation of Israel is destined for when God removes his hand from them. And it would be the same for us if God were to remove his loving hand from us. We live in a culture that is not far better than the Canaanite culture. We are more advanced, society has progressed, but the same root sins still remain. Our culture is okay with killing innocent children. Our culture is okay with sexual immorality, just as the Canaanites were. And society, yes, has progressed, without a doubt. But the root sins are noticeably similar today in our culture as it was thousands and thousands of years ago in Canaanite culture. And us Christians would look just like our culture if God wouldn't have graciously saved us. If he wouldn't have his loving hand on us, we would look just like the culture if he wouldn't continue to give his Holy Spirit to us as he has already promised his believers. He was with Israel when they were victorious and strong. And when he removed his guiding hand from them, 
the nation looked drastically different. And so would we as Christians if he removes his loving hand from us. There are many theological themes to pull from this specific passage. You could talk about God's judgment, his strength versus our weakness, what an unrepentant lifestyle looks like. But without a doubt, this text makes it clear that God, that it is God who is at work in making us look more like him. That we have the same heart dispositions as the Israelites did. We have the same hearts as them. We are prone to wander away from God. And if we have or if we were left up to our own decisions without any divine influence, we wouldn't choose God. The Israelites didn't, and they were God's own chosen people, his own chosen nation, and we wouldn't either. And it's only God who can save us. It's only God who can do the work to work in us, to sanctify us. It's only God who can provide the deliverer when we are oppressed. And it's only God who can truly give us peace and rest. And it is God who has provided our great deliverer through Jesus Christ, through his death, and through his resurrection. That we no longer have to live in fear that God could leave us to take his loving hand away from us. We have this blessed assurance that is in Christ, that God has done a great work in Christ, and that we no longer have to live as the Israelites did. We can walk confidently in the gospel of Christ. So praise God for how he works in his faithful people, because without him, we would be as lost as anyone else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your loving hand. We thank you for how you lead us, how you guide us, how you draw us into your loving arms, Lord. Uh, we just pray, just a prayer of praise to you, um, seeing what life could look like without you in it. Um, we just ask that you strengthen us, that we can continually be faithful to you, um, that we can grow in our love and affections for you, to know you more, um, to worship you more, to praise you more. Um, we just thank you for the glory of your gospel, Lord, for sending Christ um, to conquer all that we could not conquer and to live a life that we could not live. Um, we just thank you and praise you for, for his work and um, how abundantly clear it is that, that we are in desperate need and you have provided what we are in desperate need for. So we thank you, Lord, that you provide peace and rest um, for your faithful. And we just ask that you continue to grow us, to mature us, to sanctify us, um, to help us to know you, to love you more. Is all for your glory. It's your name we pray. Amen.